Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, author Stanley Booth joins Nate to talk about his anthology, Red Hot and Blue. In this episode, Stanley regales Nate with his first-hand accounts of Memphis music legends from Furry Lewis to Dewey Phillips, watching Otis Redding write and record Dock of the Bay, and Elvis Presley's endless loops around his private Graceland go-kart course. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I have the honor of being joined by Stanley Booth, author of Red Hot and Blue, among many other things, and a man I consider to be the greatest writer to ever cover music in the rock era. Stanley, welcome to the show. Um, thank you, Nathan. I'm happy to be here. I'm, so as, I hope- Keith, as Keith says, I'm happy to be anywhere. <laughs> and that's Keith Richards you're referring to, who's an old buddy of yours. Well, I met Keith... And met all the Rolling Stones, and um, which who then included Brian Jones in September of 1968, which is ancient history. But uh, we got to be friends right away, and we're still friends. That's an amazing thing. It's and you've uh, chronicled that friendship brilliantly in the True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, which I'd love to have you back on the show to discuss. But today we're going to talk about your new anthology, Red Hot and Blue. Uh, well, you know, I'm very happy to have the chance to talk about it. Uh, the Rolling Stones book was my first book, and uh, nearly killed me. Took forever to write, but to now I have a new book out, and I really like it. It's uh, it's just a collection of pieces, mostly about jazz and blues people from Memphis, most of whom were my friends. And it's a great collection. The subtitle I got to get out there. 50 years of no, writing about... No, I don't think we need to be informing the people of the subtitle. <laughs> all right. Well, you're the writer. But, uh, you know, what, I... you know, the funny thing, Nathan, it wasn't my idea. Um, my, I had a wonderful editor at Chicago Review Press, Yuval Taylor, uh, who is now left, I understand, but um, he was just brilliant. 
and very, very smart, very talented. But um, we were talking about doing this book, and I suggested the title Red, Hot, and Blue. And Yuval, um, you know, the people think differently in the North from the way they think of the South. And Yuval said, well, that was a uh, Cole Porter musical in 1938, and there was a movie with Victor Mature, uh, a few years later, and then there was a Elton John to get an AIDS benefit on Broadway, and and it was one other thing. And I said, Yuval, I know, but to the rock and roll world, the significance of the title Red Hot and Blue is that that was the name of Dewey Phillips' radio show on which he played the first Elvis record ever played on the radio, and he changed the world. And so I that's our title, Red Hot and Blue. I like it. Yeah, I think it's perfect. And uh, and I want to you on page three of the book, you run through a little bit of your CV, and I want to read a little bit of that just so that listeners know who we're dealing with here. You say, of all the blues writers you're ever going to see, I'm the only one who grew up in a turpentine camp on the edge of the Okefenokee Swamp. I and I alone. I expect, I expect that's true, don't you? <laughs> that's true. You might you might run across somebody else who grew up in the Okefenokee someday, but I guarantee you're the only one who swept the streets with Furry Lewis, who was there uh, to watch Otis Redding write and record "Dock of the Bay." Dewey Phillips got you into Graceland, and uh, you stood behind Keith Richards and watched Meredith Hunter stabbed to death at Altamont. I sure did. And uh, you've been friends with Brian Jones, Sam Phillips, Dewey Phillips, Bucka White, Graham Parsons, Alexis Corner, Ian Stewart, Yui Mo, Sam the Sham, Alex Chilton, Anita Pallenberg, Keith Richards, Johnny and Eva Woods, on and on and on. And uh, it's an incredible resume, incredible life story. And that brings me to one of the points I want to bring up with you is that, I've, you know, a lot of the times music writers and the music biz is pretty permeable. I mean, Jerry Wexler, another one of your friends, started out as a writer for Billboard, invented the term rhythm and blues there, and then goes on to be a big player in the business. And, you know, um, uh, John Landau became Bruce Springsteen's manager. You've never crossed over to the business side, to my knowledge, but you have had a big impact on the rock world. Among other things, your famous 1967 article about Elvis that appeared in Esquire that's collected in this book and is a great piece. But you you mentioned in there that you kind of meant that as a message to Elvis. I mean, it wasn't like I meant to be telling him what to do. Or, but, it's just, but it was just that Elvis, when he started out, was so good. You know, those Sun Records, and and uh, and then Elvis recorded more songs by one writer than any other. And uh, I wonder if you know who that writer was. He's the guy who wrote Do the Clam, but I'm blanking on his name. I think his Ben name Weissman was the ben name, Weissman, and he was it, the yeah. guy who wrote Do the Clam. I mean, you know, Elvis had an immense talent, and um, he didn't need to be just doing stuff like Do the Clam. You know, he came out and had the uh, boxing ring special, and then, you know, wearing the black leather suit, and you know, he, he got back in the groove for a while. And 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 that is something I find fascinating. It kind of, in a way, you're one of the writers who breaks the fourth wall. And you, you know, and I mentioned you were there when Otis Redding recorded, wrote and recorded "Dock of the Bay," and uh, wrote that up I in an article. I was the only other person there that wasn't in the band. 
I, no, I mean, I, I was the only other person except Steve Cropper. Wow. We sat in the studio, the three of us, and I. they faced me, and I listened and took notes as they wrote Dock of the Bay. And then uh, I spent the whole week with Otis, and the last week of his life, and, uh, and then they recorded Dock of the Bay, they recorded Hard to Handle, several really good things that week. When you're seeing something like Dock of the Bay revealed before you, did you, I mean, that was such a departure from, from what Elvis, Otis had done up to that point. Did you realize immediately that you're in the, pre, I mean, you knew you were in the presence of greatness, but that they were doing their greatest work, or, or did it take a while to hit you? How? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily leap to the conclusion that Duck of the Bay was the greatest work of, uh, of, of the MGs and Otis. Um, although it's a really nice song. But, it, but Otis was thinking he wanted to reach out to the uh, larger audience, meaning a wider audience. And um, and he he had this little idea for a song. And, I mean, nobody knew what was going on. They certainly didn't anticipate his death. But uh, uh, I moved back to Memphis and bought a house here. And... Um, in moving the um, you know crazy stuff I've managed to hold on to, and I found these little three and a half inch tapes of an interview I did with Otis uh, in December '67, just the week before he died. And uh, and I, I've, we've digitized some, and I've listened to them, and the uh, quality is amazing. Well, I would love to hear that so, sometime. So, yeah, well, I, I think maybe uh, uh, other people would as well. And uh, I believe you're correct. But but, but, but it's, it's fantastic. I mean, this sounds good, and and you and people can hear Otis talking about his career and where he's heading and you know, what he's thinking and and you know the last week of his life. I think that's historically interesting, or it's just interesting in human terms, you know. Absolutely, and uh, you know we've done a couple episodes on Otis and the magnitude of what was lost when he, you know flew into Great Lake at the peak of his powers is pretty overwhelming. So anything you can well, do? Well, you know, I mean, Otis was just a very lovable person. It made you feel good to be around Otis. And his death was such a shock, such a blow. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways... Stax never recovered from it. Memphis never recovered from it. I certainly haven't. And let's. And I want to switch to Memphis. We kind of blown up my outline here, but the theme of the book covers a lot of topics. But I think the fundamental thread that goes through the whole book is Memphis, and your unique insight to it. And one quote you have in here: "Memphis has always hated and feared its history." That's right, and, and for good reason. And this town, um, you know, it, it was, I don't know where it ranks now, but it was the murder capital of the country. It was a very violent, um, dangerous place. 
and still is if you go to the wrong well, places. Well, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, I'm sure there are more dangerous places in the world, but uh, um, but Memphis is not, you know, it's, as you could say of New Orleans, it's, it's not like any place else. Certainly and, not like Nashville. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly created different a different music, and you have to give Memphis its props, and you certainly have as you know one of the great regional centers of American music. But you also pull no punches. I, I like this line: "Accidents of geography, high ground, easily available water, <laughs> create great cities, and also places like Memphis." Well, I mean, you got to try to be honest. You know, it's not like Memphis is. Uh, is Bel Air or Long Island. And uh, and I like another quote. You say, for most of the years of its existence, Memphis lacked a clear identity in the minds of outsiders. It was only with the deaths of MLK and Elvis that the world came to have any sort of focus on what Memphis even partly signifies. Death is a good place to start. Death and theft and rape and pain and sorrow. The fancy music you hear in the background is an unusually complex dirge. You know, that's awfully fancy writing, and I'm not sure I particularly like it, but I can't say it's not true. <laughs> well, uh, you know, so many of the sentences you write are so beautiful that I wish I write them, but I, I respect your uh, humility on that point. But um, there's another point where you call Memphis. No, if you need, if you need any sentences, go feel free. Take whatever you like. <laughs> I mean, but believe me, a lot of people have without asking, so uh, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> and, and you also say, whatever destiny may have in store for it, Memphis has always been essentially a real estate deal. Absolutely. And, it's a scam. It's always been a scam. They bought this damn place from the Indians for five cents an acre. And you and you talk about several moments in the history of Memphis where basically they run it into the ground until it's cheap enough to run the scam again. Absolutely. No, I mean it's a cycle. Uh, Jim Dickinson used to say the uh, music business, like popular music, was uh, a self-devouring organism that vomits itself back up. And in a way, that's kind of the way uh, Memphis works, real estate works here. Neighborhoods fall into disuse, decrepitude, destruction, and then they get cheap enough you can buy them and build condos, you know? Yeah, you can uh, tear down most all the stacks and then rebuild it as a museum 30 years later. Hilarious. Where else on earth would people be so crazy as to do that? <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, Memphis has given great things to the world, primarily music. Some would say driver of ribs, but as a Texan, I can't agree with that. But the music. Oh, I'd listen, <laughs> Memphis, yeah, Memphis has drawn um, these strange original uh, seers, like. Um, Clarence Saunders, who invented the grocery store. And, you know, um, Kimmons Wilson and Walter Townsend, Holiday Inns, you know, W.C. Handy. Uh, Memphis is a very, very strange place. And let's talk about W.C. Handy a little more, because um, one of your main subjects, Furry Lewis, was a protege of Handy. Well, 
So, I mean, you're saying here that 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 Handy bought Furry his first guitar. You saying? Well, I mean, if Furry said that, I mean, who am I to tell him he's not telling the truth? But I will tell you this: Furry did not always tell the truth. <laughs> and he wouldn't be much of a blues man if he did. Well, there you go. And so, when you first met Furry Lewis, he was a street sweeper in Memphis. Oh, we was a street sweeper for something like forty-three years, and 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 he was working for the same city sanitation department that was on strike when MLK was in was killed. Well, no, I mean that before he just swept the street. Um, the sanitation thing was uh, those were the guys who went out on the big trucks and got the uh, garbage, and uh, and a guy had been. These mechanisms in the trucks pick up garbage cans, and, they, and a man had a worker had been uh, um, killed by one of these machines, one of these trucks, and uh, and there was a man mayor then. His name was Henry Loeb. He wasn't Jewish. He was uh, uh, he had um, <coughs> I don't know how to put it. Anyway, he had become Episcopalian, and he was, um, he was, I think, a very racist, short-sighted, uh, unfortunate individual who created the atmosphere in which Dr. King was killed. And, I mean, it was a hell, it was hell to be in Memphis then. And we've uh, talked with Robert Gordon about you know, what the atmosphere was like at Stacks after MLK and the riots that swept through the, the neighborhoods. And it seems like the city, you know, never really recovered from that. But Robert Gordon knows what it was like. And uh, that he does. And uh, I, But uh, let's oh, go back to... Wait, wait, wait. Explain to me how he knows that. Um, well, he was a kid in Memphis at the time, but mostly, I think, from all his conversations with the Stacks folks. And, and uh, You know what? Uh, Peter Goralnik does this. He goes out, and he talks to people, and he records the conversations, and he has no idea who's lying and who's telling the truth. And then he brings it, this is what he used to do, he'd bring the tapes home, and his wife, Alexandra, would type them up, and he'd have a book. Um, I think people should be very cautious about believing reports of, from people who were not eyewitnesses. Or even people who were eyewitnesses. I, I was about to bring that point up. My wife's a prosecutor, and we know how unreliable eyewitness testimony can be. But all we have is Absolutely. testimony. One of my favorite Hitchcock works is an Alfred Hitchcock Presents show uh, about just that point. These people um, are in court, and they're reporting about an automobile accident, and everybody saw something different. Like the great Japanese book Rashomon, but let's get back to furry a little bit. Well, yeah, it brings to mind something Hemingway said. He said, "Memory, of course, is never true." Indeed, but it's all we've got. And uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting it down, but I'm just Hemingway said that, and that's a very interesting thing. I mean, you think about Proust, you know, a little recherche de ton perdu, and. it's 
I mean, we all have a myth. I mean, I had this heroic myth of growing up and riding my little pony through the pine woods in South Georgia when, uh, you know, as a very young child. And um, um, we we all have this kind of personal legend, I think. And and Barry Lewis definitely had a legend. When you met him, he was a street sweeper, but. Um, 20, 30 years before that, he had been one of the big stars on Beale Street, which at the time was a hopping, one of the hottest uh, African-American strips in the country. Well, I mean, it, it, I don't know. I was not there then, but um, it, it, it hopped for a while. It was, yeah, I think, uh, quite a uh, thriving community. But, um, but Furry had, I mean, the, when, when the Depression hit, uh, blues was over, and it took you know forty years, what thirty, forty years for it to start to breathe again and have a have a commercial presence in the music market. The first ferry uh, recorded. He not only performed on Beale Street, but he got to make records. I wanted to play one of those records for audience. Mr. Furry's Blues. Oh yeah. This is Furry Lewis and Mr. Furry's Blues. is, you know, for people that have grown up on Robert Johnson and Charlie Patton and the Delta singers, he's a little different, but cuts his weight, I think. Well, I never met a more brilliant human being than Furry Lewis. He, uh, he, he was just, he was a poet, he was a master musician, and uh, um, there's this, in a way, the blues, historically and socially, is um, it's kind of like a religion. These people have these beliefs, you know, Robert Johnson is the greatest of all time. Well, Robert Johnson was very late. You know, Furry had already recorded in the 20s. Gus Cannon, the Jug Stompers, uh, Will Shade, they had all worked, you know, 10 years uh, before, eight or 10 years before before Johnson. So Johnson had a lot to select from in, in just terms of the music historically. So... Um, B.B. King and John Lee Hooker have both told me that the Johnson was Lonnie Johnson from New Orleans. And if you listen to the recordings he made with Eddie Lang, there is nothing more brilliant in the world. And Yeah, and the great Lonnie Johnson and Eddie Lang, who was one of the top jazz guitarists in the world, and that's another point you bring up in the book. Well, Eddie Lang died very young, and he was never actually a member of the Paul Whiteman Orchestra, because Whiteman's partner was a guitar player, but uh, but Eddie Lang, his real name was East of Philadelphia, his real name was Salvatore Massaro. At this time, uh, there was a singing group 
with they recorded with the Whiteman Orchestra, uh, Delta Rhythm Boys, Mildred Bailey's brother and Bing Crosby and, and I can't remember whether it was another Bailey brother, but there was another, there were three of them, Delta Rhythm Boys. And um, and Bing was rooming with Big Spiderbeck, the great uh, trumpet player, Big Spiderbeck. And one day they're, they're sitting around and Bing... And Eddie Lang is there. And Bing says, Eddie, where'd you go to school? And Eddie says, what is school? <laughs> That's pretty classic. But if you hear his playing, you can tell he was an educated musician. Um, and you talk a lot about Beale Street and the music the country Negroes brought to the city with its thumping rhythms, unorthodox harmonies, and earthy lyrics, combined with the city musicians' more polished techniques in regular form to produce, as all the world knows, the Beale Street Blues. And I think Fari's, to my knowledge, one of the best exemplars. Jug Cannon and, and uh, his Jug Band are another great one, but it's a little different. Oh, Gus Cannon was brilliant, hilarious. And Booker White was great. You know, I mean, Sleepy John, so many, so much talent here. It's just, it's... Uh, you know, it was just a great good fortune for me in spite of the difficulties uh, you go through living in Memphis. It was a really great good fortune for me to have the chance to be friends with these poets, you know. And I think it was everyone's good fortune because you wrote it down and told their stories. And I know I would never have heard of Furry Lewis without your work. And, and I've been enjoying Furry Lewis for 20 years because of reading about him in The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones long ago and then in Rhythm Oil and now in this collection. But you also brought a lot of insight to Elvis. And you start, uh, you've got your classic 1967 Elvis in Memphis article from Esquire. And it starts with a pretty off-color anecdote that Dewey Phillips told you. And I'm just dying to know, was well, that in the did, original? It didn't, it didn't originally start with that. That's what I was going to ask. Did, but I did, when I sent it to Esquire, I put it in at the beginning because I knew they were not going to publish it, but I knew also that everybody at 488 Madison, which is where Esquire was in, would, before the end of the day, read that piece. And and uh, and then that led it to be published and maybe was the kick in the pants, part of the kick in the pants Elvis needed to, to wake up and put his leather suit back on. But you, the, the man who got you that story was Dewey Phillips, who was the host of the Red Hot and Blue show. Tell us a little bit about Dewey and his rise and fall. Dewey's hard to describe because there was only one of them. He was from um, Edwardsville, Tennessee, and he was in love with music and in love with radio and in love with basketball as well, but that's a side, that's a side issue. But uh, um, the way I came to do that piece for Esquire about Elvis was that I managed to find Dewey, and and Dewey and I became friends immediately. I think you know, it was, in in a way, it was kind of like my meeting the Rolling Stones. We became, I became friends of the Stones immediately because we like the same things. You know? We like girls, we like drugs, we like blues. So you know, we 
hit it off together. And what was your and and was Dewey were that the same passions you shared with Dewey Phillips? Yeah, except that you know every all, all these geniuses are different, and Dewey was. Um, I mean, he was crazy. He would he would. Uh, his show, Red Hot and Blue, went from being 15 minutes long to being four hours long every day because everybody loved him. In those days, a radio announcer was very stiff, articulate, you know, intelligent sounding. Dewey sounded like a madman. And everybody loved him. I mean, Dewey would say something, on Monday. And Tuesday, everybody at the high schools was saying it. He was just a very lovable, strange, funny, unique, um, crazy person. And he's the man who broke Elvis on the radio, playing That's All Right, Mama, over and over he again. He played the... What used to happen? Sam would cut... Sam Phillips would cut a record, cut an acetate. And he'd take it to Dewey, and Dewey would play it, and if anybody liked it, ordered it, um, they'd press it up. I mean, you couldn't do that today in a million years, but um, the modern world, in a lot of ways, was being formed in Memphis in the late 40s, and, and then, you know, by 1954, it was born. And and I kind of pains me to go from 1954 and thinking about Elvis doing that's all right moment and his other great work with Sam Phillips, but I've got to play do the do the clam here from Elvis's dark <laughs> period. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> it's it's like Chekhov. If you bring up do the clam at the beginning of the show, you got to play it at some point. Yeah, you so, got to shoot the you, you have to take the rifle off the wall. So here's Elvis uh, singing Bill Weissman's "Do the Clam." Listen to that bongo sound Grab the first one in your reach Now we're gonna shake the beach Do the clam, do the clam Grab your barefoot baby by the hand Turn and tease, hug and squeeze Dig right in and do the clam And that was Elvis singing Do the Clam from his movie Clambake, one of many, many Ben Weissman songs that he recorded. And, I mean, it's something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and your, your I, I, I think we should leave it at that. Yeah, I think that's the best. But your, your, your piece on Elvis in 67 ends with a very vivid image of Elvis riding his uh, motorcycle round and round the pool. And I, it's just a brilliant capturing of the moment of Elvis, basically at the low point of his career up to that point. Right well, before. I mean, I think I think it was certainly a point in his life when he uh, was alienated, and he was, you know, he had become a big movie star. When before he was just a kid in love with music, and you know, it was. Uh, Elvis did not have an easy life. Definitely not. And and 
when you use that term kid in love with music, I'm going to jump ahead towards the end of the book and you talk about somebody, uh, you're describing seeing a young blues whiz prodigy at a club and somebody asks you, you know, what's going to happen to this kid? And you had a, you had a great quote, or this might've been about, um, a Belgian jazz guitarist, but, but you got this great quote. Barilla, I'm not sure. Yeah. Borelli Legreen, I think, was the one you were talking about. But, but somebody asked you, what, what will happen to these musical prodigies? And you say, people will rob him. Women will break his heart. If he's lucky in 18 years, he'll be 36. And if we're lucky, we'll be around to hear what he's doing. Yeah, I was talking, I was, I was in London, and um, Borelli was um, 18. And I went out with my editor, Jane Turnbull, from um, uh, Heinemann, and um, William Hanneman Publishing House. And there's this kid, this Belgian kid, who's basically Django Reinhardt reborn. And he's 18 years old, and he plays like God. And um, a few nights later, Jane called me and said uh, that Burley was playing again. And I said, we better, we better go. So we went there. And he's playing in a small group with a rhythm guitarist named Diz Disley, who was friends with Django and was cool guy. And so we sat right in front of the stage, Jane and I, and listened to them, and they were superb. And then they said, "This is going. We're going to do one more song." And what what would you like to hear? And I said, Cherokee, you know, because Cherokee, that is the jazz song. Four key changes in the bridge, I mean, that's the song. And Diz looked over at Borelli and said, okay, and Borelli said, yeah. So they played an amazing version of Ray Noble's great song, Cherokee. And 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 yet your first thought is wariness for this kid and the road he's going to be going down. Well, I mean, it's just, you know, I've seen, I've lost so many friends, and I've seen what can happen, you know? Yeah, and you've got a, a quote in here, I think it was from Louis Armstrong, when he was asked about what killed Big Spiderbeak. And, uh, yeah, isn't that said, a great quote? Yeah. Well, he died of specifically, I don't know, I think, it, I think he died of everything. And, and yeah, and that's just brilliant, but it, it pretty much sums up what happened to Brian Jones and Graham Parsons and so many of your friends. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, it makes you think of uh, Hunter S. Thompson's quote about the music industry. Um, and yeah, I, it also has a dark sign. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but I also, the story you were telling about the Belgian guitarist made me think of Phineas Newborn Jr., who was a brilliant jazz pianist uh, in the 50s and 60s. Phineas Newborn Jr. was the greatest musician I have ever met or will ever meet. Before him, there was nothing like him. There will never be anything like him again. And he's another musician I was completely oblivious to until reading your work. And, and thanks to the introduction, I mean, this guy's records are incredible. If you like Art Tatum or Oscar Peterson, that kind of really technical jazz piano, Phineas Newborn Jr. is just top-notch, and yet... No, it's not just, it's not just technical. 
um, I mean, Junior, his his version, for example, of uh, of um, um, uh, please send me someone to love. Um, I mean, it, it was such. Yeah, he had a lot of technique, but he also had this enormous heart and this history that incorporated all of American music, not just black music. But, um, you know, I got to be very close friends with his mother and his brother Calvin, who died recently. And um, it was... It was an education, I'll tell you. And you tell a lot of the story of Phineas Newborn, who struggled with mental illness and and the music business and violence, and it's it's just it's beautiful but painful stuff. And and it goes down a lot easier if you're listening to his beautiful music while you're reading. Absolutely, I have to say. And um, I mean, you know, that, that that that's what made it worthwhile. If anything made it worthwhile, um, you know, he's a little guy and. A lot of bad things happened to him. People mistreated him, and uh, yet he persisted. And I have found recently, uh, in in moving and going through old stuff, tapes and things, I have found Phineas Newborn albums that have never been heard. Well, I that's mean, the tapes. Yeah, that's something that uh, I hope you can bring to light because I know I would love to hear it. Yeah, I do too. I mean, one of them, um, we went to Denmark and he cut, Kenny Drew was a great jazz pianist and and we went out to the studio out in the beautiful uh, countryside in Denmark and Junior cut an album that afternoon. And the... Um, I made it, put together a tape and gave a copy of it to Keith Richards and one to Jerry Wexler. And that's, that was the route we took to get the uh, solo piano album uh, done on, on Atlantic, which is a very great album. And I want to switch now from one friend, Phineas Newborn, to another friend of yours, another departed friend, Charlie Freeman, who was the founder of the Marquise. And also was part of Jim Dickinson's Dixie Flyers. Tell us a little bit about Charlie. You've got a great essay in here about him. Well, um, there again, that involves personal emotional pain and loss because Charlie was he was a beautiful person, brilliant musician, just a dear sweetheart of a friend and he rec- he played with uh, Jerry Lee on the road I mean there was never anybody who was more blues than Charlie Freeman and he died of a drug overdose which is not the worst way to go <laughs> this is true. And I want to play a little bit um, from a record that he played on, which is uh, your friend uh, James Luther Dickinson's Dixie Fried. And this is John Brown, which uh, Bob Dylan used to play before his concerts for many years. This is- yes, he did. He played this version of it. So here we go. James Luther Dickinson, John Brown. Mm-hmm. 
the fat on some foreign shore His mother, she was proud And that was Jim Dickinson doing John Brown with Charlie Freeman on guitar. And Jim Dickinson was another guy who was a good friend. Dickinson and I were neither of us particularly easy to get along with, but we uh, had a long, long friendship because we knew things that nobody else knew. I mean, we had hunted down, you might say we had hunted down the blues, I don't know, if Dickinson and I hadn't been friends, would, he, would we know about Washington Phillips? Would we know about Blind Willie McTell? I mean, Dickinson was a powerfully motivated... Um, I mean, we, you know, this is a strange thing. We were all serious young men, and what we were serious about was music. And you tell a... a parable of sorts that Dickinson told you that he thought up when he was 18 about uh, uh, a Native American who's carving a, a totem pole and has I a, love this story. You want to tell it for he, us? He, 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 called, he called it my aesthetics paper. But it's a, it's a brilliant sort of metaphor for uh, the art, the artist, the creative process. And, and the, the thing that I think he captures in it, it's the story of a, of a artist who goes to carve a totem pole and has a very clear vision of what he wants to carve, gets out there on a beautiful sunny day, starts carving, and a little cloud starts gathering on the horizon and producing yeah. thunderhead. Pretty soon he's carving in a rainstorm, and then he's carving in a deluge. And, and at the end of the day, he's got a beautiful totem pole, but he can see the reflection of the storm that he that passed over him while he was carving it, and so he's not no, happy not with it. Quite, it's not quite what he originally had in mind. He's exhausted, he falls asleep, and he wakes up and he starts over. And that's one thing about, it's, uh makes the uh, difficulty of spending your life as a writer or a musician, um, it, it's a help. Because what you do is you start over again every day. And, and have to try to re- capture that vision you had in your head and, and hopefully you well, haven't lost not but yeah, but yeah, but the vision has probably changed while you were sleeping. You know, you're not necessarily, you know, looking for something that you conceived in the past. You're just trying to make the best of the day. Absolutely. And, and, and the, in the book, there's a sort of a natural narrative arc to the to the collection here and, and you, you talk about Elvis in sixty seven at its low point, but then you come back to Elvis in seventy seven and talk about the death of Elvis and uh the the way Graceland turns into a tourist trap. But I thought the most compelling thing was uh your your piece on Doctor Nick. Uh, the King is dead, hang the doctor. Yeah. And, and uh you make they a pretty ruin, they ruin Nick's life. You know, this is this is something that Really, I can't change it, but it's not right. Everybody knows that the Rolling Stones hired the Hells Angels as security for Altamont. 
Except that didn't happen. They didn't hire the Hells Angels. It was a free concert. Anybody could come, and about 500 angels did. And everybody knows that Dr. Nick prescribed the drugs that killed Elvis. Elvis did not die of drugs. That never happened. But everybody think you know, not I wouldn't say every last human being, but but a great many people think Nick killed Elvis. Nick kept Elvis alive. Yeah, and you, and you tell a tale of, you know, that Nick was the guy who uh, would intercept drugs that Elvis would get from other doctors, that when Elvis fell into the clutches of a quack who was claiming to practice acupuncture but was actually injecting Elias, with Elias got him. He was the uh, um, boxing doctor in in, uh, in Nevada. He did all these crazy things uh, and kept Elvis uh, in a stupor for, uh, I think, two or three weeks. And he's trying to lose weight. And if you're just lying there unconscious... When you wake up, you're probably going to weigh about the same as when you went to sleep. You know, living in this town and seeing the annex of, you know, and a lot of those guys were my friends. I mean, George Klein was a dear friend, just, just died recently. Um, he was the president of Elvis's high school class at Hume's High School. Um, but, I mean... Strange things happen in Memphis. And when you have people, you know, powerfully talented people like Elvis, who basically have no education, um, it can be, it gets to be interesting to watch at times. Yeah, and, and nightmares for the people that are trying to save someone like Elvis. And, and you know, Dr. Nick worked hard, as hard as anyone, maybe harder than anyone, and couldn't save him. And then, you know, takes the fall. And I mean, it's to the point where, you know, my kids are learning about everything through the lens of the Simpsons TV show. And there's a character on there called Dr. Nick, who's the prototypical foreign educated quack doctor with an accent. And, you know, reading your story, it really makes Dr. Nick uh, painful to see uh, when you realize that this is, you know, the echo of the maligning of an innocent man. Yeah, you're right. And so, I mean, Geraldo Rivera admitted to me in conversation that he had been wrong about Elvis, about, about Dr. Nick and, and Elvis, that uh, he, he realized that Dr. Nick was not taking advantage of Elvis. And then later, after we'd had that conversation, he went back on TV and repeated the same calumny um, against against Nick because because he's a person you just couldn't possibly respect, I guess. And I want to I want to quote you again when you talk about um, the music business and and what it does to people. And you say music has a hard enough time saving itself and can hardly be expected to save the world. But you also say the problem is you don't want yourself or anyone you care about being devoured. All of us who were around at the time saw what happened to Elvis. Some of us watched as Alex Chilton went from having the number one record in the country at age 16 to washing dishes in New Orleans a couple of decades later. And that's why when a kid with talent comes along, you feel fearful for him and for yourself. If you're like me, you've had your heart broken too many times already. In the end, 
is the the pleasure that people get from music is it worth the cost that it brings on people or would be people being paying those costs for just existing in the first place i mean elvis could have been a tragic truck no, I, driver. Think, I, I think that's exactly right i mean that's, that's the way to put it um being born into this world is to become acquainted with suffering and it's um uh, and music is one of the consolations of existence and yet you know you've got this Pretty fun screenplay in here. Mr. Crump don't like it if Beale Street could talk or treatment. I'm not sure if you'd call it a screenplay, but you've got some segment segments quoting W.C. Handy, who had been when he when he expressed to a teacher that he was interested in music. The teacher warned him it would bring him to the gutter, and it did. I found that my teacher's prophecy did. was true. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and but he also says later out of this hardship. All of it went into song one night. And if you've ever slept on cobblestones or had nowhere to sleep, you can understand why I began this song with, I hate to see the evening sun go down. Furry used to do a version of St. Louis Blues. And Furry's version began, Bang away, my Lula. Don't bang away so strong. What you gonna do for banging when Lula did and gone, baby? I hate to see. That evening sun go down. I don't remember Lula from Mr. Handy's version, but I think he would probably have liked Lula. Well, let's let's hear that song. It's Fred Lewis doing the St. Louis Blues. That was Fry Lewis's version of the St. Louis Blues, uh, written by his mentor, W.C. Handy, uh, who Fry claimed bought him his first guitar. And one of the most poignant and powerful images in your stories about Fry Lewis is the image of Fry Lewis sweeping the street underneath W.C. Handy's statue, which is a classic example of Memphis honoring someone uh, after it's too late for them to care. Exactly. Yeah, I was I was actually there when they unveiled that statue. It's a it's a nice statue uh, on Beale Street, but um, it you know the, the, on Beale Street now they have all these gold stars on the sidewalk. You know, different people. I don't know who all Jerry Wexler has one. Al Green probably. I'm sure Otis has has one. Um, Isaac Hayes. You know probably be, be people like that uh, and uh, you know I don't have a star on Bill Street and I really think I'm better off without one yeah but uh, after you pass they might put one out there without asking you well I mean I can't do anything about what happens after I die but uh, I just you know I, I don't like this town is a town where they love to give each other awards. 
you know, let's have a big banquet and, you know, get up and talk to the people. And, and this guy was so great. But, you know, awards are nonsense. 2012, the Smithsonian Institution gave me a uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. I didn't ask for it. I didn't conceive of it. I didn't particularly want it. And it has thus far done me no good whatsoever. But I just, you know, the Academy Awards, I mean, this is not a foot race. This is not a competition. Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Prize. If Bob Dylan got a Nobel Prize, Johnny Mercer should be emperor of the universe. And where is Randy Newman's Nobel Prize? <laughs> we'll have to write the committee and see what they say. Well, Stanley, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, the book it's is been Red a Hot. Pleasure, Nathan. Thank you for asking me. I really enjoyed talking with you. All right. Well, I'm going to have to ask you to come back and uh, put you on the spot and ask you to come back and talk about the true adventures of the Rolling Stones sometime. I would enjoy doing that. Awesome, because that that's the book that turned me put me on the path I've been on my whole life and my morbid obsession with Brian Jones. So <laughs> well, <laughs> you've got something you know, to answer Brian, for. Brian, Brian was a sweet person. He was just a, uh, he was not happy and he really wasn't in control. And we'll look forward to hearing more about that when you come back. And that was Stanley Booth, author of Red Hot and Blue. This has been Let It Roll. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back Thursdays for our new show focusing on Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus, and next Monday when Jesse Jarno returns to talk about the Grateful Dead, LSD, and his book Heads, a biography of psychedelic America. Red Hot and Blue is published by Chicago Review Press, and you can support the show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our site, letitrollpodcast.com.